have to make a confession first. I changed the title as well. I think it's been um, <laughs> going throughout this conference that everybody changed the title. I think mobility and risk reflects what I want to talk about much more accurately. Um, and I would like to talk about mobility and risk because I think in the last few years we've seen a resurgence of looking at migration in a positive light, the migration and development discourse, which I'm, my background is in international development, has become very positive um, in terms of how migrants, so the kind of, you know, the, the positive view of migration and development and how migrants kind of can lift themselves out of poverty, in my mind, has gone a bit too far by neglecting migrant welfare. So people are not really looking at, you know, the costs of migration to the migrants and the households. So, I really would like to focus more on you know, how migrants um, deal with risks, how they perceive risks, and how they manage risk. And social capital is one way um, to do that. And, and, and I did this research that I'm presenting here. I did this quite a long time ago for my, for my PhD work, but I thought it, it encapsulates um, very well the ne network dimension that we're talking about in this conference and the kind of the feedback loops. Um, the main, the main idea is to look at migration as a livelihood strategy and how people kind of, you know, how inequality matters in migration, how it feeds migration, and also how migration um, can reduce or increase inequalities and poverty. So that's the kind of the background. So I think we we do need to bring in the negative outcomes of migration back into the debate, to kind of just. You know, just to balance it out. Not to say we need to stop migration and we need to curtail migration or manage it from above, but we need to kind of enable migrants. And I think looking at the risks that they're exposed to is a very important component. Um, the risks, of course, for migrants are very different because they're mobile, because they're going to environments where they, they know less people, where they're more exposed to even um, different environments that they might not know. Um, my focus here is to draw out the spatial and the temporal dimension of the risk exposure that migrants have in their migrant um, um, in the process of migration, but also the, the, the spatial and temporal dimension of the social capital they, they're using in order to manage the risks. Um, and I think for my, my concern is to understand whether migration can be a path out of poverty or it can also whether it can reproduce poverty. So that's the kind of overarching goal for me in my research generally. So just a quick one and I won't go into the whole theoretical debate about vulnerability. There's a lot of there are a lot of definitions out there. For me, it's a very s simple, um, not equation, but a kind of a way of, of conceptualizing how people um, deal with poverty and whether they can um, increase or decrease their poverty. So vulnerability is a susceptibility to loss of losses of well-being, and it is a forward-looking concept. So if somebody isn't poor today, they can be poor tomorrow. So that's where vulnerability differs from poverty measures. Um, and the risks can be endogenous to the household, there can be death within the household, loss of jobs, there can be exogenous, there can be um, you know, linked to globalization, um, boom and bust cycles in, in global markets and all those things. Those are risks that people are exposed to. And capabilities are, is, the, is the agency in the equation, the kind of looking at you know, what people bring to the table in order to manage those risks. You know, their human capital in terms of education, the social capital, which I've been focusing on, um, you know, the strategies that they, that they are aware of, perceptions of, of what is risky and what is not risky, power structures, so that goes, all goes into the capability box um, in the analysis, and I'm not going to draw everything out, but this is how 
I kind of deal with the structure agency in my research to kind of look at you know, how livelihoods and how people deal with, with the challenges and the opportunities in life and what the capabilities are in order to, to do that. Um, so why is vulnerability different for migrants? It's because they have specific and emergent risks as, as a consequence of their mobility, of their movement over space and over time. They, you know, they, they have different legal status to local populations. They're often socially excluded by color, by race, by a religion, whatever. Um, the time space I mentioned that Ron mentioned right at the beginning of the conference is very important. Where do migrants come? Where do they come from specifically? What is the cultural background? Where do they go to specifically? You know, that all, all this matters. And the multi-sidedness of livelihoods matters because uh, in much of the migration literature, we're looking at the migrant as an individual, but they are not disconnected from their family, usually at home. You know, we, we talk about remittances, but we don't really think about what the impacts are, you know, both ways, going both ways, and remittances can also go both ways. So I think that's why vulnerability on a conceptual level is different um, for migrants. And then to come to the time-space dimension, just quickly, I kind of think about migration in certain stages, and then one can map onto those certain stages, you know, differences in... Um, what migrants are doing and what the strategies are, what the risks are in, at, at different points of the migration experience, um, and then also you know, what type of social capital they might be using at different stages. So I think, for me, it helps to kind of break it down and not see it as a whole complex thing. But it's, I think it's also important to realize that there are differences, and that social capital, for example, can change. You know, and, it's, if you, and I'll show this later. I'll go into details later. Um, so I find this, so to come back to the kind of risk capability um, that, that shapes people's vulnerability, I think social capital is very important for migrants because it does provide them with information, you know, what's going on in a different place. Um, it incentivizes migrants to go somewhere because it reduces the risk potentially of finding a job, finding accommodation and all those things. I mean, it's been well documented throughout the literature that social capital matters. Um, it, it definitely influences risk perception and preference. Um, it might not actually be true that there is less risk, but people feel, you know, or kind of perceive that there's a reduced risk. So all these kind of nuances also need to be drawn out. It's, it's social capital is crucial in, in terms of providing some sort of kind of fallback and insurance mechanisms for a lot of migrants, and I'll show this in the case study. Um, especially when you have illegal migration or um, people working in informal sectors that they have, you know, they don't have formal welfare arrangements, so they need to rely on, on an extended network usually of people. But the question here is, who, who can they rely on? Who do they rely on? So we can't just have this black box of social capital and say, you know, yeah, yeah, they rely on and, and they reduce their risks somehow. But, you know, the social capital might also change over time. So if you can rely on your family for three weeks or three months, that's the difference in, in terms of exposure to risk, really. But also, I mean, it's also been shown that social capital does have its drawbacks and that it, it does incur costs, you know, and, and kind of reciprocity arrangements. Um, and that you can kind of not really judge who will help you when sometimes. So that's, 
it's an enormous picture, and so also over social capital component as something positive is also a little bit dangerous, and I just want to put that in. So I'll go through the case study. Um, I did this research, uh, I started it in 2000 um, for my PhD, and what I did was I used, um, I chose a community in the north in the red rice growing Red River Delta, um, uh, interviewed around 100 um, households, some, uh, you know, a, a quarter of the non-migrant households, which was, I found really important to get a handle on if there's a difference in choosing to migrate, to migrate or not. Um, a multi-method, I interviewed people, I interviewed the household as a whole, so I, I would have questionnaire, livelihood questionnaires with one person and in-depth interviews simultaneously with the other person so I could kind of see if there were any kind of fudging, <laughs> fudge factors as well. So triangulation within the households was quite important. Um, and then also the multi-sidedness. I did, I did go, so a lot of the migrants that I interviewed went to the Central Highlands, which, which is in this island area of Vietnam. So I kind of started focusing on, on that particular migration stream of migrants going to other rural areas to, to buy land or to get land and farm coffee. So there was an immediate kind of risk exposure. And I didn't know this at the time, but subsequently, you know, the risk of farming coffee is really great because it has boom and bust cycles. Um, so, so I kind of focused on that particular migration stream. Um, so I did, I did try to go to the Central Highlands, but a week before I wanted to go, the riots broke out <laughs> um, because of the migrants. So it was a very interesting thing to observe in itself because the migrants who went to this area actually changed the context so much. There was a lot of social conflict going on, um, a lot of environmental degradation going on, that, that the local population, the ethnic population, actually um, had had enough. And, and rioted, which was unheard of in Vietnam. So I wasn't actually allowed to go to the particular area where my migrants roughly went to. But um, I went close enough to ask some questions. So I had this multi-sided approach um, to see if, if they correlate, if the perceptions once they went um, were the same as, as the perceptions that were propounded at home, because sometimes you have this effect of people don't really say what they really think when they come back to their home communities. Um, I drew network maps with um, the migrant households. So I had, um, so this is the origin and this is the destination and various movements over their lifetime. So I would focus on the household head usually and, and say, okay, where have you gone in, in your life? And who did you know? You know, what was your destination and why did you go? And um, I'm not sure if I could still make sense of this. This is a long time ago, but it was really interesting that you know, it wasn't just one move, of course, um, but also that they always knew somebody where they went. So 80, 80 or 81 percent of the people that interviewed went with a contact or contacted, contacted them to, to come and help them in the Highlands. And a lot of the non-migrant households said, I mean, I didn't, I didn't interview a huge percentage, but they said, oh, we couldn't go, we wanted to go, but we didn't know anybody in the Central Highlands. We would have gone if we'd known somebody. So that was kind of Counterfactual was very interesting as well. Um, just to so the drivers of migration were quite classic, you know, high population density, very young population with limited jobs, very small land allocated by the government. Um, there was a history of migration to the Central Highlands because soldiers were um, sent there after the war, after the unification of Vietnam. 
Um, so there was this kind of the start of, of the migration already was kind of government incentivized. Government has new economic zones in the Central Highlands. So there were some people who were familiar with the area. And then suddenly my, Vietnam kind of discovered coffee. And then in the early 1990s, um, land was available. It wasn't really parceled up by the government. People just moved in, cleared it, farmed coffee on their own backs. Um, and, and Vietnam became, within 10 years, became um, the world's second largest producer of Robusta coffee in the world. So hardly anybody knows, which is amazing. Um, and all that was fueled through this migration, mainly from this area. Um, and a lot of the migration was kind of cumulative and, you know, fed, fed by the social contacts. And, and the government assessed this because the government first incentivized people to go and then they thought, oh God, this is kind of taking a life on its own. We want to manage this. And they couldn't anymore because people just kept coming and, and suddenly they had no control over the resources. Erosion was a problem. Social tension was a problem. Um, and then, you know, infrastructure developed. This is a bus sign of a direct bus link um, from the Red River Delta down to the St. Island. This is like 2,000 kilometers or something. It's a direct bus. <laughs> it's just, yeah, so things like this, you know, fed this movement. Um, yeah, so it was very, the social capital in this whole process was very important. But what happened was that this mass migration to the Central Highlands changed the context, as I mentioned. And this is just a brief illustration of what happened to the coffee, coffee production. And then it tapers off. But this is the price of coffee. And it, it went in 2001. It reached at such a low point that people couldn't recoup their own money, um, their own investments for the, for the coffee plantations. Um, and, and so the risk context changed substantially over the years, how people, you know, they had to manage with declining resources, with declining income from that, um, from that one cash crop they were kind of investing everything into. Um, the problem was a lot of the migrants chose to not permanently resettle, so they couldn't take loans in the highlands. They had to rely on people back home to take loans out for them. They had to rely on the family to take out loans in order to keep the farm going for the next two or five years until the cycle kind of picks up again. And it did. In 2005, I didn't, I didn't show, but it, it did pick up again. <clears throat> but in order to bridge that gap, they really needed help from people. So what migrants did to adapt to these changes and to those risks in the highlands, um, they diversified their crops, which also cost money. Because um, some went migrating to other places, so short-term labor migration. So it's this onward migration. Um, land scarcity became a problem. So contacts, again, were very important to negotiate access to land. It was more important than sometimes money um, to be able to, to negotiate that. Um, reverse remittances were hugely important. You know, the, the people from back, people back home would put in labor. They would come down for, for the peak seasons of coffee farming. Um, but they, crucially, they were taking out loans to give to their sons. And some, some families had two or three sons in the Central Highlands, and they put all the money. They sold their pigs in the Red River Delta. They sold everything and put all the money in. So that, that kind of helped, but I think there was a big drawback of that. Um, the, the stretching element of having these two households mattered as well, because this wasn't just for a year or two. This was over 10, 15 years that these families were apart that sometimes children were left at home with, with their grandparents for those prolonged periods. Um, grandparents would say, you know, we, we're missing our sons, nobody's looking after us, we have to look after all this land that our sons have left us, we can't cope. 
And it was an interesting cycle, actually, that the, the elderly parents would say, um, because we can't, we can't um, share labor with other families anymore because we have so much land to look after ourselves. We can't actually ask anybody to help us with this, all this land, and we can't help them. So they, they experienced a reduction in social capital. You know, and they became more vulnerable as a result because they had to have all these kind of responsibilities that their sons left behind, so to speak. Um, so there was an in interesting knock-on effect back home of having, having those migrants and, and helping, helping them. Um, and some, some people moved on. So I, you know, I interviewed households in the Central Highlands and they would say, oh yeah, X, Y, Z neighbor, they moved to Ho Chi Minh City because they couldn't make a go of their farm. So that's an interesting element as well. You don't know who's actually successful and who isn't. The problem with migration studies, as everybody knows, you can't, can't interview the people who've gone. Um, so that was an interesting kind of side element of this. You know. So social capital, I think, on the one hand, facilitated this migration and helped migrants at different levels and different stages um, of this process, incentivized migration, but it also created its own problems. So this mass movement in the Central Highland created a very, very risky context. Um, the interesting bit about weak and strong ties, I did, I did look at, um, you know, was it family that helped you? Was it friends or was it extended people? You know, soldiers, for example, um, people who are soldiers together in the war, they have a very strong bond. You know, that's not blood-based, but they will always trust each other. And people said... Yeah, it was those weak linkages that are actually more important in the long run. The, the strong linkages, because family has to help you, you know, as a social code of conduct. Family will help you, you know, but it was, after a while they said, oh, they just helped us emotionally. So there was this kind of um, implicit thing that didn't help us very much. We couldn't rely on them for money. We had to really ask, or we had to take loans for exorbitant interest rates from other people. So the kind of the strong ties didn't really work far away. So that was, that was an interesting one as well to look at. Um, so the reverse remittances, you know, it might help you for a short time or it might help the, the migrant. Um, but it's a high-risk strategy because everybody back home might get indebted and might become more vulnerable as a result. Um, the keeping land as in, in the origin as an insurance is a double-edged sword as well because people then can't um, change their registration to another area, which means that they can't access healthcare, they can't access loans, so they're still connected to the home area, which has these effects on the family necessarily. So, and, you know, it, it, there, is a, there is a chance that because migrants have a different way of, of negotiating access to resources, because they're not um, embedded necessarily in the society, it might enhance inequalities, and I think that's, that's quite an important one for poverty. This is not so what I think, coming towards the conclusion, I think what a lot of the literature focuses on is the positive aspects of um, you know, how migration enhances people's capabilities um, and the, kind of the impacts on poverty reduction and how people... And I'm not going to go through all of this time, but I think we need to also focus on the, on the negative side, the risks but also in both locations. So the migrant at the destination, but also the mi migrant family at home. So we need to look at you know, how the two contexts are connected, how migration can impact on the household at home. There are, you know, there are studies on child welfare at home and everything. But I think there are more and more ways of looking at this. Um, and the negative 
impacts of social capital need to also be um, included in discussions. So just to um, summarize, so migration can reduce poverty. I mean, there's, there's a lot of evidence that investing into farm, farm um, um, production and diversification activities can help people to kind of become more stable and have more stable livelihoods. The stretching of livelihoods, I think, is, is, is a good way to, to use resources, especially if you have a big family and you know, not everybody can find a job in situ that can work. There is evidence that replacing land-based livelihoods is in some cases in Thailand, for example, has been shown that it is happening and it does make sense because people, it's just not viable to live on the land and this kind of thing of keeping people on the land is not necessarily a good policy approach. So, you know, it may reduce poverty, but it also, I think, um, can reproduce poverty. So by creating dependencies on remittances and then, you know, it reduces the agency of some people, like women have have no negotiation power if, if they're reliant on, on a male who's away. And all those things can kind of help people, not help people, <laughs> to reduce poverty. Um, the reverse remittances, as I said, can create certain challenges. And social transformations, you know, need to be looked at more closely in how, you know, the care for the elderly, how that, how that um, can reduce poverty for people as well. Um, so I think... We need to ask some old questions, sorry. We need to ask old questions, but also some new questions. And I think the new questions are at the bottom. So, you know, kind of, what, what are the risks that migrants are exposed to when they move somewhere? And what are the effects of social capital in relation to risk management? You know, how does it, how, what's the feedback? Is, is, there, is there always a positive feedback, or can there also be negative feedback? And what is the potential for transferring the risks from the destination to the origin through, through those networks? And I think we need to kind of focus a little bit more on, on those as well in our migration research. Thank Sorry. <laughs>